message notes out and follow along with the message today. Before I get into the message, let me say about the marriage conference. I was talking to John Burns this week. Him and his wife, Helen, are going to be hosting our marriage conference. And if you've never heard them speak before, they are a dynamic couple. You're really going to enjoy them. John wanted me to give a message to all of the men. He, he kind of grew up in a church world where you didn't want to go to the marriage conference if you were a guy because you were going to get beat up. Because how many know every marriage problem is always the guy's fault, right? And uh, so he hated going to marriage conferences because it's just like, I, I don't need to hear, you know, about what a loser I am. And, and that's just, you know, I don't, I don't want to put myself through all of that. And so he made a decision that if he ever got to the place where, where God opened doors for him to lead marriage conferences and teach marriage conferences, he was going to make it man-friendly. Like, men are going to love the marriage conference. So let me just tell you, he, want, he wants you to know he's got your back. So you, you can feel safe of attending this marriage conference as a guy. It's going to be a great time for you. Everyone's going to get something out of it, but especially the men, you're going to enjoy this marriage conference. And then he also told me, uh, to have you invite your friends who don't go to church. They're not a very churchy couple. Now, they're going to be sharing biblical principles that are very practical with real-life experience, but they're not a churchy couple. And so uh, a lot of their marriage conferences, they have a lot of people who attend them who don't go to church, who are not Christians, and they get as much out of it as anyone else. And oftentimes, they thank their friends for bringing them, and many of them even find Christ through the process of going to the marriage event. So if you've got friends and their marriage are struggling, invite them, pay for them, bring them. They will get as much out of it as you will. It's going to be a great conference. You can sign up online or there's a table outside. You can talk to the team about getting registered for it. It's going to be a great time. Well, if you've got your message notes handy, we are finishing this series that we've been in called The Daniel Dilemma which is based off of a book that my pastor Chris Hodges wrote last fall uh, by the same title. And the whole concept of this book is how do you stand firm and love well in a culture that is sliding as fast as they can away from God? Because right now, culture wants you to make a choice. Culture is putting us into this uh, confrontational position where you've got to decide, are you going to love well Meaning, are you going to compromise what you believe and compromise truth and compromise your convictions in the name of love and take on this position that you love people more than God loves people and you wouldn't put certain things in the Bible if you were writing the Bible because you know better? Or are you going to take the side of truth and standing firm and standing by your convictions and nobody's going to like you and you're going to be mean and you're going to be judgmental and, and you're, but you're going to be right? And that's the choice that culture is, is putting us into. And they're trying to, they're trying to convince us that it's an either-or decision. Like you either stand on this side or you stand on this side. And what we learn from the book of Daniel is it's both and. Like you can stand by your convictions and you can stand by what you believe and at the very same time not make anybody feel judged, not make anybody feel condemned and love people at the very same time. And that's what we want to learn. This is what we learn through the life of Jesus. This is what we learn through the life of Daniel. So I would encourage you, if you've missed any of the previous week messages, go to our website and watch the, the previous weeks, because these are principles we need to figure out how to live in the world, in the culture that we're living in today. What I want to do now, the first six chapters of Daniel are history. What I want to do is I want to dig into the last six chapters of Daniel, which is the prophecy. 
It's the prophetic section of the book of the Daniel. It's the dreams he had of the end times and the stuff that, that is in the book of Revelations that John saw, that Daniel saw, that Jesus saw, things that are yet to come. And it, it, pretty powerful stuff. There's predominantly three dreams or three prophecies that Daniel saw that he writes about in the last six chapters. Now, the thing about the book of Daniel is it's not written chronologically. So these didn't happen at the end of his life and you, you read the beginning of his life. These three visions, dreams, prophecies would have happened somewhere in the first six chapters. Like he received these during the first six chapters. So the first six chapters of the history of his life and then he includes the dreams at the end of the book to make a little bit more sense for you. And that's what we're gonna dig into today. Where I wanna start though is the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 24, there's a passage of scripture where Jesus himself validates the vision that Daniel saw. Jesus validates that the prophecies that Daniel wrote about, some of them haven't happened yet. Some of them have, some of them haven't happened yet. They are things to come. Now, if you love the end times and you love to study about the end times, I would encourage you to read all of chapter 24. It's a fascinating chapter. It's Jesus describing what the end is gonna be like. We're gonna touch on a few verses in Matthew 24 to begin with, and then we're gonna dig into the book of Daniel. Matthew 24 it says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will all of this happen? And that's what everyone wants to know. Like, when's it gonna happen? When's it gonna take place? When's the date? And everyone's trying to predict the date of when Jesus is gonna return. I remember a couple years ago, there were billboards all over the city that said, on this date, Jesus is gonna come back. And the truth is, nobody knows. Not even Jesus knows. Only the Father knows when it's all gonna happen. That's not the right question to ask. You know, people want charts and they want timelines, but the more important question is, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? To which Jesus says, I can't tell you the time, but I can tell you the signs. I can't tell you the exact day, the exact minute, the exact moment that I'm gonna return, but I can tell you what it's gonna look like. I can give you the signs of the times. I can, I, can, I can paint a picture for what the world will be like right before I return. In the rest of Matthew 24, he lists all of the signs of what the world is gonna be like. And again, it's a fascinating study. But here's the thing about the signs, end time signs. All of the end time signs have been fulfilled in different generations throughout history. And if you were gonna make a, a calculated guess based on history of when Jesus was gonna return, the best guess you could come up with would have been during the, the generation of World War II because you had wars and rumors of wars. You had this Antichrist figure and Adolf Hitler, and they all thought this is the generation that it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen during our lifetime. We have the signs. But here's, here's the difference. None of the generations have had all of the signs happen at the same time. All generations have had the different signs. All of the signs have, have been in different generations, but no generation has had all of the signs at the same time. We are the first generation in history where all of the signs are simultaneously being fulfilled at the same time. And my personal belief about that is we are the end time generation. 
I personally believe it's going to happen in our lifetime. Like I'm gonna, I get a front row seat to watch this thing unfold in my lifetime. And here's the thing, even if it's not in our generation, this is still our end times because I don't have any more time. So whether we are in the end times or it's just my end times, I'm still in the end times. And all of that to be said, it doesn't change the way I live my life. I'm still going to live my life the very same way. So he goes on to say, and here's where he begins to reference Daniel, because of the increase of wickedness, there's a moral decay. And we're seeing this happen right now in America. The love of most will grow cold. What that means is there were people who once loved God, who began to buy into culture, and their love for God grew cold. And can I say this is exactly what we're seeing in America right now? There, there are people who are Christians in America who now are saying certain things that the Bible has been absolutely clear about aren't really sin anymore. That's not what the Bible means. That's, that, that's, not, that, that's not really sin. And it's exactly what we're seeing happen in America. People now are becoming Christians, are becoming very, very confused to what the Bible has been absolutely clear about all along. The love of many have grown cold, but the one who stands firm. And again, that's, that's what we want to learn through this series, is how do we stand firm and love well? The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Here's another sign that's unique to our generation. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. What that means is the gospel, the message of Jesus is going to be translated into every language, either verbally or written form, where every ethnos in the world, this word nations in the Greek language, the Bible is the New Testament part of our Bible was written in the ancient Greek language. The word nations is ethnos. It's not sovereign nation. We know there's 177 nations in the world, but some of these nations like China and India have multiple people groups, multiple languages, cultures, and people groups within that nation. So what this is talking about is ethnos, the people groups of the world. We're the first generation in history because of technology where this is finally happening. Missiologists tell us there's only a few uh, ethnos left that have not had the Bible translated in their own language, and it's currently in process. Like the Bible is currently being translated into, because of technology, into every ethnos on planet Earth. In the next few years, it'll be finished. And it says, and then the end will come. So again, Jesus says right before the end comes, the gospel will be translated and preached to every ethnos on planet earth. And now he goes in and he, and he begins to describe what Daniel saw. He says, so when you see standing in the holy place, now he's talking about the Antichrist figure who's going to stand in the holy place. That is the third temple that will eventually be rebuilt in Jerusalem, the first two temples were destroyed, one by the Romans in AD 70, one by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon during the time of Daniel. To this day, the Jews want to rebuild the temple. If you go to Israel today, there are warehouses in Israel where they have all of the furniture ready to go. 
As soon as the peace deal is signed and they're able to rebuild on the Temple Mount, they have all of the furniture and their whole plan is to go back to animal sacrifice and reinstitute temple worship in Israel. Again, you can talk to people in Israel. I'll be there this week. You talk to them. I've been there before. They'll tell you, oh yeah, we want to go back to animal sacrifice and rebuild the temple. That is the plan. And so this is what Jesus is saying. When you see the Antichrist standing in the holy place, that's the third temple, the abomination that causes desolation, that's what Daniel saw, spoken of through the prophet Daniel. So again, what Jesus is saying is some of the visions Daniel saw have not happened yet. Many of the visions have taken place exactly as Daniel saw it. Some of them have not happened yet. He says, let the reader understand, which is funny to me because it's complicated. Like, it's not easy to understand this. It's, it can be a little confusing. It can stretch you a little bit. So what I want to do today is make it as simple as possible. I love to summarize the Bible. I love outlines. I love lists. I love to take complex truth and kind of reduce it down as simple. I've got a very simple mind, so I've got to reduce it down so that I can understand it. So that's what I want to do today is make it as simple and plain as I possibly can and kind of give you a couple outlines, give you a couple lists of what's going to take place. And then I want to give you a couple powerful takeaways, because at the end of the day, this is an interesting message, a lot of great information, fun to study, but if it doesn't change your life when you go to work tomorrow morning, it's absolutely wasted. Like, like, like it's worthless to know this stuff if it doesn't change the way you live your life. So I'm going to give you some practical takeaways at the end of the message. Daniel summarizes all of prophecy, all of this, the vision that he has, the end times, into what he calls the 70 Seven. Sevens mean periods of time. It's the Hebrew word Shabuah. We know this as years. So 70 periods of seven years. In other words, 490 years. Daniel sees all a prophecy in 490 years, to which when you study it, 483 have already been fulfilled exactly as Daniel saw it. There's a missing seven years that we're going to talk about Today, here's where he breaks it down in Daniel chapter 9. This is in your notes. 77s or 490 years are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. In other words, 490 years until God's going to return, Satan's going to be, you know, thrown into the fiery pit, Jesus is going to rule, everything is going to be great, 490 years. From the time the word goes out, what that means is from the time King Cyrus, he was the fourth king that Daniel served under, from the time King Cyrus issues the decree, the 490 years begins. So from the moment he issues the decree, the timeline begins. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, let me just stop there for a moment and say Daniel could not have known this. In Daniel's mind, this would have been impossible. If you understand the culture, the goal of these foreign empires is to obliterate the culture. They would destroy the city. They would take everybody as slaves. They would annihilate their customs. They would annihilate their culture. They would indoctrinate them into their way of life so that they wouldn't just destroy a city. They would destroy any remembrance of the history or culture of that people group. There are thousands of people groups from antiquity. We'd have no idea who they are because they were completely annihilated. So in Daniel's mind, Jerusalem's gone. 
the Jewish people are gone. They're slaves to the Babylonians. He's in captivity living in Babylon. Jerusalem's never gonna be rebuilt. Like it's destroyed. No king in his right mind would ever allow the city and the culture to be rebuilt. And Daniel is seeing this vision of God saying that Jerusalem is gonna be rebuilt until the anointed one, capital A, Daniel sees Jesus in this vision. He sees Jesus, the ruler comes. He says, there will be seven sevens. Seven times seven is 49 years. Guess how long it took to rebuild Jerusalem from the day King Cyrus made the decree? 49 years. From the day King Cyrus said, To rebuild, it took 49 years to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city, and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And 62 sevens, meaning another 434 years, it says it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble, after the 62 sevens. So 49 years it takes to rebuild Jerusalem. After the 49 years, there's going to be 434 years, the anointed one, Daniel sees Jesus, will be put to death. Do you know how absolutely miraculous this passage of Scripture is? Because after Jerusalem and the temple was rebuilt, 434 years later to the day, Jesus was hanging on a cross. Daniel saw this hundreds of years before Jesus was born. I mean, this is why the Bible is so absolutely amazing and incredible, because there's no way when this was written, Daniel could have known any of this would take place. It says, the people of the ruler will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. Daniel's now talking about AD 70, when the Roman Empire comes into Jerusalem, they destroy the second temple, they destroy the city of Jerusalem again. The end will come like a flood. Now he gets into the missing seven years, which have not begun yet. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He, meaning the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. So here's the last seven years. Here's the last seven years. So what it's talking about is the Antichrist will be this charismatic figure who's going to broker a peace deal between Israel and Palestine. Because because Israel wants to rebuild the third temple and they want to go back to animal sacrifice. And so this charismatic figure is going to rebuild or he's going to broker this peace deal in the Middle East. And that will be the beginning of the last seven years. In the middle of the seven, so right at the 50-yard line, three and a half years in, the Antichrist will put an end to sacrifice and offering. So again, the Jews are going to go back to animal sacrifice right in the middle. The Antichrist is going to say, nope, just kidding, not doing that anymore. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. That's what Jesus saw until the end that his decreed is poured out upon him. So what the Antichrist is going to do is right at the three and a half year mark, he's going to set up a temple to himself and he's going to force the entire world to worship him. That's the mark of the beast. They're going to have to worship him. They're going to have to bow at his statue. This is what Jesus saw. This is what Daniel saw. Do you get it? Make sense? <laughs> Pretty confusing, isn't it? Let me, let me summarize that for you the best I can. What Daniel sees is 77's 490 years of prophecy. Daniel sees 490 years of prophecy, to which 483 have been fulfilled exactly as Daniel saw it to the date. 
49 years to the temple being rebuilt, 434 to Jesus hanging on the cross. Now, when you continue to read the last six chapters of Daniel, Daniel saw Alexander the Great, Daniel saw the Roman Empire, all of this before it ever happened, described it identically as history played out years before any of these events ever took place. We're not going to get into that today because Truth is, it's ancient history. Like, I would rather focus on what's yet to come. Like, I'm more excited about the seven years in front of us, the missing seven, than what, I mean, you can study what happened in the past, but let's talk about what's going to happen in the future. So, 49 years from the moment King Cyrus issued the decree to rebuild the temple, the city of Jerusalem, exactly 434 years later, Jesus gave his life on the cross, that's the 62 sevens, meaning There's seven years of prophecy yet to be fulfilled. This is the part that Daniel talked about. This is the part Jesus talked about. Paul talked about it. Peter talked about it. The entire book of Revelation centers around these seven years. And I know that the book of Revelation can be a little bit intimidating. It can be a little complicated. So again, let me try to break it down as simple as I possibly can. When you study the book of Revelation, there's 10 key events that takes place. 10 key events that that we know that happens on a timeline. Now, let me give you a disclaimer. There are some theologians who see the events in a different order than I personally see them. That's okay. There's a lot that see it the way I see it. There's a lot that see it slightly differently. The good news is the ending is the same for all of us. So if you get, you know, point three and point four, you know, inverted, that's fine. The last five points are all going to be the same. Like, like, we all have the same conclusion. Some of us just have a little bit different beginning. I'm going to give you what I personally believe, and I'll show you why I personally believe it. Ten events to summarize the entire book of Revelation. First thing is the church age. This is exactly where we're currently at. If you want to know where are you on the timeline, where are you in the book of Revelation, we are in the church age. That is Revelation chapter 2, chapter 3, great study. Great study right there. Uh, there's seven things that Jesus wants his church doing. So there, there, there's these stories of these seven churches, and Jesus is basically giving us marching orders. This is what I want you to be focused on. This is what I want you to be doing. This is the church age where we're currently at. The very next thing to happen on the timeline in my opinion, is what we call the rapture. The rapture. This is where, you know, Jesus says two people will be working in a field, one will disappear, one will still be working. Two people will be lying in a bed, one will disappear, one will be, one will be left. That's when Jesus, uh, he doesn't, this is not the second coming of Christ. Jesus comes to the clouds and those of us who have committed our life to him, who are his followers, we're gonna be raptured off of earth and we're gonna go be with him in heaven before it gets really, really ugly down here. Now, the reason I put Revelation 4, verse 1, is because that is the last place in the book of Revelation the church is mentioned. You read Revelation, it's church, 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 nothing. It goes silent on the church. The reason I believe it goes silent on the church is because we're not there anymore. Like Jesus comes to get his bride off of earth before it gets really crazy and really ugly. I also believe that because Jesus said in the last days, it's going to be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. When you study the story of Noah, you study the story of Lot, Jesus, God has an MO of rescuing his people before judgment comes. God got Noah and his family on ark before the rain fell. 
God got Lot and his family out of the city before Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. I just believe that's God's MO. He gets his people out before judgment comes. The next thing on the list is what we call the rise of the Antichrist. That's this charismatic figure who's going to broker the peace deal between Israel and between the Palestinians. That'll be the next happen. This is, this is the signal of the last seven years of prophecy beginning. So this is the start point of the last seven years, which we call the tribulation. That last seven years of prophecy and theology, we call it the tribulation because it's gonna be a very difficult time. It's gonna be a very challenging time. Let me just put it like this. You wanna avoid this at all costs. Now, I know there's certain people who think we're going through the tribulation. There's like, you know, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib theology on the rapture. I personally am gonna leave on the first elevator. Like, you can stay <laughs> if you want. I'm going on the first elevator. Uh, e e either way, you know, uh, you know, the ending is still gonna be the same wherever you think he's gonna rapture us. But, but I just believe, and I'll show you in a couple other places why I believe that the rapture happens before all of this. But, but here's the thing. If you see the peace deal being signed, then either the rapture didn't happen or you missed it. Um, <laughs> and if you missed it and you're gonna go through this seven years of hell, let me just, let me just warn you now, it's going to be hell. It's going to be incredibly difficult. It's going to be very painful. Whatever you do, do not take the mark of the beast. If you miss the rapture for whatever reason, you can still be saved during the seven years, but you cannot take the mark of the beast. That doesn't mean anything to you now, so just file that way. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you can believe it to be a fairy tale right now. Just file it away until that day comes, and when that day comes, just pull that information out and remember that, but it's going to be very, very difficult. Again, this seven-year tribulation, the last seven years of prophecy, ends with what we call the second coming of Christ. That's when Jesus returns, throws Satan into the bottomless pit. He sets up shop. He's in charge. He's in control of planet Earth. Now, the reason God is delaying this process, the reason this hasn't happened yet, is because God loves people. That's why this hasn't happened yet. God wants to give people as much opportunity as they can to get right with him. Like the, re the only reason he delays this process is to give people every opportunity to give their life to him because the Bible says that it's his will that nobody perish. The very next thing that's gonna happen is what we call the marriage supper of the lamb. This is why I love God. The first thing that he's gonna do is throw a party. You know, people got all these weird ideas of heaven, you know, floating in the clouds, playing harps, wearing, you know, white ghost-like clothing. Not at all. The very first thing Jesus is going to do when he returns is to a party. There's going to be music. There's going to be food. There's going to be dancing. It is going to be awesome. Then from there, we go into what theologians call the millennium. Now, this is, I understand the concept. I don't fully know why, but I understand what it is. It's a thousand-year reign with Christ on planet Earth. So after he returns, he puts Satan in the bottomless pit, locks him up, and he and us, those of us that, that are part of his family, we're going to rule and reign on planet Earth for a thousand years. With, with no you know, devil, no temptation, it's gonna be a wonderful wonderful time. Now, when you study, there, there's a number of Jewish historians, Jewish scholars, Jewish scientists who believe in what they call a seven-day earth, which is very fascinating to study. Now, I don't know if I quite buy into it fully, but it's fascinating because Isaiah 46 verse 10 says, God reveals the end from the beginning. 
meaning he shows you how it's all going to play out at the beginning. The beginning was Genesis, the creation of planet Earth. Well, there were seven days in creation. The question is, from the time of Adam to now, how many years has it been? Well, it's been 6,000 years. The Bible says a day is like a 1,000 years to God and a 1,000 years is like a day. If you study the, for each thousand-year segment of the history of earth, it correlates perfectly with each of the six days of creation. The seventh day was the day of rest. The last thousand years, the millennium, many theologians believe is the seventh day. Like the earth is literally going to be 7,000 years old before it's all said and done. The first 6,000 years from, from now until, you know, the earth being born with Adam and Eve was 6,000 years ago. The last 1,000 years is the day of rest, the millennium reign with Christ. Now, I don't know if I fully buy into all of it. It's a cool thought to think about, pretty fun to study, interesting information. Again, uh, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that definitively, but it's very interesting. The question, though, is what day is it today? Like, when do we move into the seventh day? When do we move into the 7,000th year? Well, Jewish scientists and scholars believe it's going to be around 2022 to 2032 is when we move into that final, you know, seven-year or, or the thousand-year millennium reign. The very next thing to take place is the last rebellion. Again, I don't fully understand this one, but for whatever reason, at the end of the thousand years, God is going to let Satan out of the pit to tempt as many people as he can uh, we believe the reason God does this is there's going to be people born during the thousand years, and they need an opportunity to choose Christ, to choose God. You can't choose God unless there's another choice available. And so God let Satan out of the pit to try to tempt as many people as possible, the final rebellion before God puts an end to it. Then we move into what is called the great white throne judgment. This is not for Christians, this is for non-Christians. So those of us who are part of God's family, we will not go to this judgment. This is the final judgment where Satan will be judged and everyone that, that is, is part of Satan's crew is gonna be judged, thrown into the fiery pit. And then finally, the last event in Revelation is eternity. That is what the Bible describes as the new earth. God's plan for eternity, God's plan for us to live with him forever is not in a place called heaven, it's in a place called the new earth. Meaning God's plan is to restore planet earth back to its original Garden of Eden-like state. And the Bible's very clear about this. The oceans are gonna turn back to fresh water from salt water. The only reason we have salt water is because of the curse of sin. Animals are gonna lose their carnivorous instincts. You'll be able to swim with sharks and play with lions and bears. The earth is gonna be an absolutely amazing experience and that's where we're gonna live forever with Jesus. That's the final event in the book of Revelation. I know that's heavy. Uh, that, that basically reduces the book of Daniel and the book of Revelations down into a very kind of fun summary to study, to look at. But here's the thing. How does it change my life? Like, what does this mean when I got to work tomorrow morning? Like, like how does this matter at all? Because I really don't believe having the most accurate chart or the most accurate timeline if it doesn't change your life, means anything at all. Like, I think it's kind of worthless if it doesn't actually change your life. So let me, let me end this with a couple practical takeaways. Let's go to the very last chapter of the book of Daniel, and let's look at how it all ends. At that time, Michael, Michael is one of the three archangels of heaven. 
Michael is the archangel over prayer, which means he's always in a fight because prayer is a battle. So every time you see Michael in the Bible, he's fighting in the heavenlies to bring uh, answered prayer to God's people. The great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress. This is talking about the seven years, the seven years of tribulation. It's gonna be hell, such as not has happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book. What Daniel sees is the Lamb's book of life. You see, every time somebody genuinely gives their heart to God, when they, when they give control of their life to God, when they accept God's gift of forgiveness, the angels in heaven open a book that the Bible calls Lamb's book of life, and your name is written in that book. Can I just say, you want to make sure your name is written in that book. You, you don't want all of this to happen and your name not be written in the book. Everyone whose name is found written in the book, and here's why I believe the rapture happens first, will be delivered. See, we're going to be delivered from the seven years of distress, the seven years of tribulation. I, I believe that very, I believe the Bible is very clear about that personally. Again, we'll find out, but, but I personally believe the Bible is very clear. It says, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. That is what Paul talks about in Thessalonians, where the, where the dead will rise. Basically, your, your, your physical body will be reunited with your spirit, reunited with your soul, some to go on to everlasting life with Jesus, some to go to the great white throne judgment. Those who are wise, this is my heart for you. The entire reason I do this message is because I want you to be part of the wise, I want, wisdom is applied knowledge. I want you to be able to take this information and apply it to your life in a way that changes your life. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness. Again, this is why the church doesn't exist for ourselves, but it exists for the people who are not here yet. This is why our church has to stay on point. Like we are here for one reason, to bring as many people to God as possible. I'm not here to get my kids through college. That's gonna happen, but I'm, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to get as many people to God as possible, to lead as many people into righteousness as possible, and that's how you be wise in the world today. You wanna know how to be wise in the end times? Bring as many people to Jesus as you possibly can. They will be like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. And then it gives another sign of the end times that is unique to our generation. We're the first generation in history where this is true. Many will go here and there, travel, to increase knowledge, knowledge. Do you realize 100 to 200 years ago, the most anybody could travel was 20 to 30 miles in a day? Think about that. That's why in a state as big as Texas, there's a town about every 30 miles. Why? Because that's all you could travel before you needed to find a place to rest, to refuel, to recharge, to find food. Well, this is no longer true. Tomorrow, my wife and I are going to board an airplane in the morning, and within a 24-hour period, we're going to be halfway on the other side of the world in Israel in the Middle East. Do you realize this has never happened before in history? I don't think you fully understand how remarkable travel is. Knowledge, the increase of knowledge. Do you realize from the time of Adam till about 200 years ago, scientists tell us the knowledge, the information that we knew, the knowledge that we had doubled one time. Over a 5,800 period of years, knowledge doubled once. They said 
Then it doubled again 50 years later. It doubled again 30 years later. Scientists today say that knowledge doubles. What we know as a human race doubles every 12 months now. And in a couple years, they say it's going to double every 12 hours. Again, this is a sign that is unique to our generation. He goes on to say in verse 8, Daniel says, I heard all of this, but I didn't understand. That, that, that sounds to me like a husband. Like, like, I heard what you said, didn't understand. I think I need to go to the marriage conference. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> so I asked, my Lord, what will the outcome of all of this be? He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified. Again, this is another sign of our generation that is unique to us. Many will be purified, many made spotless and refined. Do you realize from 2008 to 2018, more people have accepted Christ than from the time of Jesus to 2008 combined? I mean, again, this is unique to our generation. But the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand. Peter goes on to say that they'll even make fun of us for believing this. They're going to mock us for buying into this. They're going to laugh at us. But those who are wise will understand. Again, we want to be part of the wise. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Let me do the math for you. That's three and a half years. Remember, Daniel said it's going to be right in the middle of the tribulation. The Antichrist is going to stop the sacrifice, set up the statue to himself and make everybody worship him. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest. Now, let me just stop for a moment and say, if this message has given you anxiety, made you a little afraid, you got a little fear going on right now, that is not the purpose of prophecy. The point of prophecy is to give you rest. The point of prophecy is to put you at peace because you know how it's all going to end. When you know how it's all going to end, you don't have to walk into the fearful unknown. You can, you can walk into it knowing that it's all going to end the way God says it's going to end. And as long as you're on the right team and your name is found written in the book of life, you are good to go. And then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. To summarize all of that, Daniel says, be wise. Don't be afraid. Rest. Rest. And if you hang in there, you're going to receive your inheritance. Let me give you some wisdom. If you go study Jesus in Matthew 24, if you study the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and a little bit of 2 Thessalonians, you go study Peter in 2 Peter 3, uh, all of them talk about the end times and every single one of them has the same conclusion. So however you, you order the beginning, the good news is they all have the same conclusion. Conclusion. So here's the wisdom they all agree with, regardless of your eschatological view. They've all got the same thing to say. Peter puts it like this. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. In other words, you're not going to know, so don't try to figure it out. Like, this is not what you need to be figuring out. You don't need to know that the second he's going to come back. That's, know the signs of the time, but you don't need to know exactly the day it's going to happen. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, here's the important question. What kind of people ought you to be? That's the question that matters. 
since we are very likely in the end times, and again, if we're not in the end times, it's still our end times, what kind of person should you be? This is the only question that matters. This is what the book of Daniel is about. Stand firm, love well. He says, you ought to live holy, set apart, and godly, God-first lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Do you realize you play a part in speeding the return of Christ? This is what we do as a church. The reason we are, we're passionate about a, as a church about reaching people and bringing people to Christ and being on point and being on mission and never doing church for church people, but doing church for the people that aren't here yet. The reason we do that is we're speeding the return of Christ. Daniel said, that's how you be a shining light. You bring many people to righteousness. You have a role in speeding his return. So let me give you three to me, very powerful takeaways. If you wanna know how to live during the end times, three things. First, follow God, not culture. Follow God, not culture. Culture changes, God doesn't. And let me warn you right now, culture's gonna change more. It's not gonna get any easier for us. Culture is sliding. And there are a lot of Christians who are getting very caught in culture right now. They're more enamored by culture than they are by Christ. This is a big deal. Paul, at the end of his teaching on the end times, here's how he wraps it up. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. Follow God, not culture. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, be ready for Christ's return. This is not a time to not be ready. This is not a moment in history to not be ready for his return. I mean, you, you just follow the signs. Jesus said, listen, you're not gonna know the day or the minute, but you'll know the signs. You'll know, I, I can paint you a picture of what the world is gonna look like right before I return. This is not a time to not be ready. Jesus put it like this, therefore, keep watch. Keep watch, pay attention. Because you do not know on what day the Lord will come. And again, I think we have many Christians who are more enamored with the world than they are with Christ. They've been caught up in culture. They've bought into things because everyone around them has bought into it. And they've forgotten that God has asked them to stand firm. Love well. We're not going to be mean about it. We're not going to be ugly about it, but we're going to stand firm. We're not going to cave to culture. We're going to be ready for the return of Christ. And then here's the third thing. Because all of this is true, make the most of this life. I'm asking you, make the most of the life that you've been given. And can I tell you, this is difficult for us in North County because life for us is awesome. I mean, do you realize not everybody got North County? And that actually makes it harder for us because we have so much to live for and we have so much to enjoy that it's so easy to forget what really matters most. See, when your life isn't all that great, it's easy to stay focused on what matters most because life isn't that great anyways. And there are Christians in the world where it's very easy for them to stay motivated because they're living under persecution and they're living in poverty and they're living in hell and the environment that's so, so against them. For us in North County, this is a lot more difficult because you have way too many things to enjoy. 
You have too many pleasures, too many amenities, too many things at your fingertips that it's really easy to forget about what matters most, that we're not living for this life, we're living for that life. That I live this life to make the biggest difference I can for the life that is to come. This is why Paul says, be very careful. I'm telling you, you need to be careful. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Make the most of every opportunity that God gives you to strengthen yourself, to build your faith, to strengthen your community. Why? Because it's not going to get any easier. Let me put it like this. Make the most of every opportunity you have to be in a small group. Why? Because you have to strengthen your faith, and the Bible is very clear. We do it in relationship. And this world is not going to get any easier to stand for God. And I know we got a lot of Christians who say things like, well, I just don't have time to be about being a small group. Well, the reality is you prioritize what's important to you. You make time for what matters in your life. So the question is, what matters in your life? The question is, are you making the most of every opportunity? I need people in my life strengthening me. I need that community. The Bible is very clear. I can't do this on my own. Like, I need a family of faith to do this life with. I can't neglect my small group. I'll fall in the world that we live in. And I've said it before, it doesn't need to be a small group of this church, but there needs to be a small group of believers outside of your immediate family that you're doing Christianity with. You need to make the most of every opportunity. Why? Because these days are evil and they're getting worse. Would you close your eyes with me for a moment? I know a message like this, just, just listen to me for a moment. I know a message like this can put fear in people. And one of the fears is, man, I need to make sure my name is written in that book because I don't like the prospects of going through all that hell on earth. Let me be absolutely clear with you. You cannot give your life to God because you're motivated by fear or because you're trying to avoid consequences. It does not work that way. There's no way to come to God out of fear or come to God because you're scared of the consequences. That's not genuinely giving your heart to God. That's being scared of consequences. So I don't, I don't want anybody to give their life to God or, or think that you're giving your life to God today because you're scared of what's to come and you want to avoid what's to come. It, you cannot be motivated that way. The Bible is clear. It's the goodness of God that draws us. If anything, what I'd like you to see today is the extreme of Jesus's love. Understanding the reality of how everything's gonna play out, what that should do is allow you to see God's love for you like you've never seen it before that God so loved you that he allowed his son to be sacrificed on your behalf so that you could escape all the hell that is to come and be with him and have everlasting life with him. That's the gospel. 
And what motivates us to give our life to him is his love for us. When I, when I see that I was guilty, that I, I should be paying for my own sin, and yet Jesus out of love went to a cross to pay for, for all of my debt, everything that I owed so that I could avoid the hell that is to come. I'm telling you, that makes me love Jesus all the more because no one has ever done anything like that for me. No one's ever done anything like that for me. So I gave my life to him, not because I was afraid of hell or, or afraid of you know, the end times or what was to come. I gave my life to him because I realized how much he loved me. Look what he went through to save me from all of this. And so I just don't want anyone to try to get right with God motivated by fear or get right with God because you're trying to avoid something that's going to happen. No, I want you to get right with God because today you get a revelation of how much he loved you. Like, like God knew what was to come and he loved you so much he couldn't sit by and let it happen without doing something to rescue you. And he paid the ultimate price to rescue you because he loved you because he did not want you to experience any of it. He wanted you to be rescued from it all. And so he paid the ultimate price to rescue you because he loved you. That's the motivation today. Father, in the name of Jesus, God, I pray that this message would motivate us to live the life you've called us to live, to make the most of every opportunity, to keep watch, to be ready, to follow you and not not get caught up into the culture around us. God, it's, it's fun to study this, but more than that, God, it needs to be knowledge that is applied. It needs to be wisdom that changes our life. So let us walk out of here today as the wise. In the name of Jesus, amen. Would you stand with me? If you're here today and you need to get right with God, you either need to become a Christian for the very first time or you need to get right with God this morning. What I'd like you to do is during this closing song or at the end of this closing song, we're gonna have a prayer team available. And if that's you, you, you need to get right with God. I want you to come down and pray with somebody on our prayer team today. They would be thrilled to pray with you. Whether it's getting right with God or whether it's maybe the very first time giving your life to God, God loves you. He wants to give you the gift of forgiveness. You just have to come receive it. So I want to encourage you to come down and pray with somebody on our team. And if you need prayer for anything else going on in your life, whatever it is, during this song, at the end of the song, come down and pray today. Let's worship together before we leave.